Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Lena Hatib. Lena is director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House in London. She was formerly director of the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut and co-founding head of the Program on Arab Reform and Democracy at Stanford University's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. Her research focuses on the international relations of the Middle East, Islamist groups, and security, political transitions, and foreign policy. Our conversation today is about the terrible multiple traumas being inflicted on the people of Lebanon and what can be done to hold those responsible accountable. Lena, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Just last week, a boat carrying more than 150 migrants, men, women, and children, left from the North Lebanon city of Tripoli. A little while later, the boat capsized at least 95 drowned, including 24 children. Most of the people on that boat were from Lebanon, but there were also people from Syria. These are absolutely desperate people leaving because they could not even feed their families. At Chatham House, you see your role as working to hold policymakers accountable. Who is responsible for this awful latest tragedy? Sadly, this tragedy has many people uh, responsible. I would put at the top of the list the policymakers in Lebanon um, and also in Syria, because these people are fleeing destitution. The situation in Lebanon and in Syria is pretty desperate economically. People are not even able to meet basic needs in Lebanon right now. Um, this has been going on for few months and it is really new in the history of, of the country's modern uh, kind of times because even during the war, Lebanon did not witness this level of poverty and this level of economic hardship. So you have people who have no so social safety net offered by the Lebanese government. The Lebanese government is corrupt. The Lebanese state is practically bankrupt as a result of the bad governance and corruption of the policymakers in charge of the country. In Syria, of course, we still have a regime that continues to kill its own people, not necessarily through direct violence, but also uh, through policies that make it very difficult for people to survive. So I would put these two regimes at the top of my list. But at the same time, the international community has in some ways been responsible because, again, there's been so little attention now, not just to Lebanon and Syria, actually, but to many places in the Middle East at large, as, for example, Europe gets more and more concerned about the conflict in Ukraine, the United States also concerned more about Russia and China, that, you know, the Middle East gets pushed to one side. And there aren't viable economic or social development policies that are being formulated to help this region. And there are also no political policies uh, that could help push for reform in Lebanon or try to end the conflict in Syria. So I would also put part of the blame on the international community. Going back to the political situation in Lebanon, the parliamentary elections in May promised some hope with a handful of independents elected, that is people not tied to sectarian political parties, the thought was they might just make a difference. I'm wondering you know, what's happened to them and, and, and to that hope. 
Well, it is still important that Lebanon for the first time saw more than 10 uh, independents win seats in parliament. This is something that did not used to happen at all in the past. In the last parliamentary election before that in uh, Lebanon in 2018, the uh, people who won were mostly from the elite and only one person broke through who wasn't from an elite ruling political party. So the fact that, you know, um, there were a lot more this time is important. We have to remember that reform and democratization are not linear processes. And also, this is a small kind of change, but also not that big that it would, you know, transform uh, the country and transform policy. So we have to look at the good and the bad and what's realistic. The good is that there's been some progress. The bad is that, sadly, the ruling regime basically is still there with the same elites being the dominant political actors in the country. And the realistic is how much change can a handful of members of parliament make in the country when, as I said, the elites are still the ones really calling the shots. So we have to be realistic about our expectations. The way I see it is this is the beginning of a very long journey. And I'm glad it at least started because this kind of scenario would have been very difficult to imagine maybe 10 years back, not even, you know, 20 years back. I mean, so it is progress, but we have to be realistic about what this means. Um, it's the beginning. I, I, I'm hoping that this kind of trajectory towards reform and independent voices continues, but it's going to be very difficult for them to really be able to make meaningful changes within the political system. But yeah, we need to wait another generation for that. Mm -hmm. Just for listeners who may not kind of fully grasp the sectarian nature of the politics, can you just quickly sketch out for us what that is, this entrenched elite that you've spoken of and, and against which these independents are in a certain way banging their heads? Yeah, I mean, the reason why the system is so difficult to crack is because in Lebanon, the political elite and the economic elite are more or less the same. They have formed political parties that have been in power in many cases for decades. And these political parties may have different political leanings. Uh, some are complete political opposites. However, they all have a stake in keeping the status quo intact in Lebanon because the status quo is built on so much systemic corruption that it allows these people to engage in transgressions without accountability. So even if they may oppose one another politically, so for example, you have some political parties that are supportive of Iran and of the uh, regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And you have other parties that are, you know, kind of on the opposite side of, of the political spectrum. However, unfortunately, uh, when it comes to their economic interests, they both find in the status quo uh, favorable conditions. And, and therefore, they have a stake in uh, keeping the status quo, which is a political system based on the allocation of seats on the basis of sectarian affiliation in place. And this is why it's so difficult for independents who tend to not be 
you know, representative of sects in Lebanon who tend not to be uh, puppets of external uh, regimes being influential in Lebanon. Uh, they tend to be people who are against systemic corruption. That's why it's so difficult for them to break through. Yes, and it's interesting, isn't it? As you say, uh, parties with divergent ideologies and political views can find common ground when it comes to sharing the spoils as as ordinary uh, Lebanese pay the price. Yeah, as we saw with the capsizing of the migrant boat. I mean, some of the things happening in Lebanon right now really are absolutely tragic. When when you have a country like Lebanon rich in water, because Lebanon is mountainous, and yet people have water shortages. And when some of the politicians actually turn off the water supply at the source so that then they could send trucks selling water privately to people to fill up their tanks at home. You know, when you have that kind of system, you know, going on um, in, a, in, a, in a country that is actually rich in water, you know, this is immoral, corrupt. It's just despicable. And, and that's why the system in Lebanon needs to fundamentally change. But it's very, very difficult. And the average ordinary person is the one paying the price here. Yeah, well, let's let's look specifically at uh, Hassan Nasrallah and Hezbollah and, and their allies, uh, the political party Amal, I believe it's called. Uh, Hezbollah seems to have a stranglehold on the country. Is that yeah, still the case? Is that still the case, Lena? And if so, can it ever be, be broken? Well, right now, Hezbollah is the strongest political party in Lebanon. It is the party that possesses weapons when no other party does, because Hezbollah has been given an exemption by the Lebanese state on the basis that this is a protector of Lebanon alongside the Lebanese army. This is the argument that the Lebanese government adopted more formally in 2008, actually. It had been adopted kind of de facto before, but made formal in 2008, that uh, Hezbollah is a, a, a kind of auxiliary force to the army. It was not expressed in such terms, but that's the implication uh, adopted by the government in 2008. And that has given Hezbollah the legitimacy it has always sought to be able to retain its weapons on the basis of protecting Lebanon from external threats, uh, such as Israel. But the reality is, because Hezbollah is the only one that possesses these weapons, and because it has access to funding from Iran, as well as funding from all kinds of illicit transactions like the sale of drugs, Hezbollah has become the most powerful political party that rules mainly by intimidation vis-a-vis -vis its opponents. So, Political opponents to Hezbollah in Lebanon are scared because Hezbollah might just, uh, you know, threaten them with physical violence. And therefore, when you have this kind of situation, it's very difficult for any opponents to Hezbollah to really uh, be able to change this dynamic. And they probably will be able to change it if the international community, for example, changes the way it approaches Iran's regional role in the Middle East. Because as I said, Hezbollah is supported by Iran. For as long as Iran's regional role is not challenged by the United States, by the UK, by the international community at large, 
it's going to continue to exert influence in different places in the Middle East, including in Lebanon through Hezbollah. So for me, really, the way to see a change in this uh, balance in Lebanon, or imbalance rather, because Hezbollah is, is really very dominant and everyone else is, is weak, cannot come from Lebanon itself. So it's not going to happen through popular protests. It's not going to happen through revolution. It can only happen through a change in international policy. And I sadly don't see that change happening because right now the international community's focus when it comes to Iran is very much limited to the nuclear negotiations and there isn't really much attention to Iran's regional role. So unfortunately, uh, Lebanon is paying the price of this very myopic approach to Iran by the international community. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, as you say, the Lebanese is, Hezbollah is not a problem that the Lebanese can resolve themselves. And the sort of pressure that would be required uh, is really not there right now. The focus on JCPOA, as you say, um, and Iran pretty much still calling the shots with regards to Hezbollah. And of course, Hezbollah is still backing Assad in Syria. What about others, though? I'm thinking of Riyad Salameh, the governor of the Bank of Liban, the central bank. He's a key player in the kleptocracy of the elites, a man quite skillful at avoiding accountability, despite criminal charges being brought to numerous investigations in Europe and in Lebanon. Is Riyad Salameh a symptom or a cause of the economic catastrophe the country's been plunged into? Well, I would say both. Having someone like him with so much uh, power and yet so much de facto immunity, you know, regarding accountability, is a product of systemic corruption in Lebanon. But at the same time, this person's economic policies with what a lot of people have called the Ponzi scheme in Lebanon, where effectively state resources are being siphoned by the elite. Many of those elites actually own banks in Lebanon and they take money um, from the government instead of, you know, having an economic system that is built on actual growth and a fake stabilization of the Lebanese currency pegging it against the dollar when the reality is the currency was actually depreciating in value for for years. All this was masterminded by Riyad Salemi and others um, in the kind of political elite status quo in Lebanon. So he's not alone. He is a symptom and he is also a cause, but I wouldn't say he is the main cause because the main cause is this club of elite who all come together and cook up together this corrupt uh, dish that um, Lebanon is is suffering from, you know, today. Yeah, and as you say, these families that own banks and uh, and really they, they they launder money through, don't they, in in order to uh, enhance their wealth. Yeah, I mean, money laundering is rampant in Lebanon. Smuggling is rampant in Lebanon. Uh, importing goods without paying customs is rampant in Lebanon. Selling unethical products like uh, fake medicine, sadly, is rampant in Lebanon. Um, so many corrupt practices are, are uh, a characteristic of the ruling elite in this country, and they all cover up for one another. And that's what keeps the system going. 
And uh, definitely uh, key figures in this uh, economic kind of milieu are, are, are to blame for this. So right now, for example, a lot of uh, or a number of Lebanese people have tried to get the money that they have put in the banking system in Lebanon uh, back by force because the banks are preventing people from accessing their money. So a number of people have shown up uh, two banks carrying weapons, sometimes fake weapons, but you know, the people at the banks don't know that because these people are absolutely desperate and need their money to pay for, um, medical operations or to rescue their businesses, um, from bankruptcy, etc. And the reason why people are doing that is because they have lost complete faith in the system in Lebanon. They feel that you know, the, the system is so corrupt that they have no other choice but to act in this way. And the banks are now crying wolf. They're saying, but we're victims and, and, and we need to close because we are being threatened by these people. And ultimately, we as banks are the victims of government policy. And it's not our fault. But actually, as I said, the political elite and the economic elite intersect in Lebanon. So the banks are also responsible. They are not victims of government policy. They are complicit in this rotten, you know, uh, economic dynamic and financial dynamic that has uh, been dominant um, in Lebanon for decades. Now, Riyad Salame, do you think he will ever be brought to book? Do you, or, or do you think he, he goes between his, his villas and his, and his office at the bank and manages somehow to escape being being uh, uh, arrested. He's getting away with a heck of a lot. Uh, just to give one example, $330 million worth of government bond commissions steered to his brother's company, multi-million dollar purchases by the bank of properties in Paris. I mean, can he just carry on and get away with this without accountability? Of course, he denies any wrongdoing. So... Can you get away with it, Lena? Yeah, as I said, because the political elite facilitate that. I mean, just think about another example, which is the uh, explosion at the port of Beirut in 2020. Uh, the government said there's going to be an investigation, but this has not happened yet. The government actually and the powers that be are trying their best to derail any investigation. When a judge decided to have some sort of independence into, into investigating what happened, uh, with the port explosion, you know, the political elite took many measures to try to get him out of, out of, um, uh, position, you know, in the investigation. Uh, and so who's gonna hold Riyad Salami accountable? You know, the Lebanese system is not gonna hold him accountable because the Lebanese system is the one that actually covers up for people like him. Yeah, we'll get to that uh, terrible explosion uh, a little bit later in the podcast because I want to get your, your views on that. But I, I want to uh, ask you now about outside players. And I'm thinking, first of all, of the IMF and the World Bank. You know, they come in and say, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to curtail inflation, you have to bring in these uh, financial and economic reforms. Um, their interventions and their demands, uh, do you think they are helpful or are they harmful? I mean, right now, the IMF is making, I think, very, very sound demands when it comes to asking for reform and transparency in Lebanon so that Lebanon can get um, a loan from the IMF. 
And at the same time, the World Bank is also issuing very strongly worded reports um, about Lebanon, saying that the crisis in Lebanon, for example, is a deliberate depression, which hints at the complicit elite who I mentioned, who have designed economic policies that in, in some cases are meant to actually make people poorer. Because when you make people poorer, you also benefit if you are a politician uh, operating on a client-patron relationship with the people. So the World Bank is saying we are now aware that this is happening. And uh, they also called the financial uh, system in Lebanon a Ponzi scheme. Again, I was just talking about that earlier. So, okay, good. Now we have the World Bank acknowledging that uh, these problems are rampant in Lebanon. But at the same time, when you think back, you think about the IMF and you think about the World Bank, and these are also the same institutions that not too long ago were praising individuals like Riyad Salami for stabilizing the economy in Lebanon which we now know was an artificial peg of the value of the Lebanese lira to the US dollar, for example. So these are the same international institutions that used to also engage with the elites that are deliberately now, you know, being seen as, as deliberately impoverishing the um, population. So what I'm saying here is that it's good that these international organizations are now being critical, but at the same time, they also played a role in keeping this status quo alive just like Western policymakers also played an indirect role in keeping the policymakers in place because they um, engaged with them without conditions, without conditions regarding the importance of reforms. And so this is why, again, the problem in Lebanon is a shared responsibility at the end of the day. The Lebanese, of course, share a huge burden of responsibility, but so do international organizations like the IMF and the World Bank and others, the UN and the international community at large. Mm. Now, what about other players, uh, the Gulf states, the Saudis? I see the Saudi ambassador has been going around arm twisting about who's going to become the next president uh, in Lebanon. Uh, Israel, of course, France. How influential are they and um, I wonder how committed they are to finding solutions. So do they think that, you know, the status quo suits them? I mean, you know, I think all of these used to have a lot more engagement in Lebanon than they do now, whether positive or negative. I think for now, uh, most of these players have other priorities. So, for example, Saudi Arabia has bigger things to worry about regarding Gulf security uh, than Lebanon. They also saw that their political and economic investment in Lebanon uh, through, for example, supporting the former prime minister of Lebanon, Saad Halili, did not really pay off because he has proven to be quite weak politically. And now he's practically retired from politics because the Saudis withdrew their support because they saw that eventually Hezbollah came to dominate uh, Lebanon and not a pro-Saudi party. So why should they, you know, spend any uh, resources really on Lebanon? And, and if they're going to invest economically in Lebanon, well, you have Hezbollah dominating. So why would they do that? So they don't stand to gain much uh, really from Lebanon. And that means that their involvement has lessened. France could be more influential, but it has instead chosen to mostly stay on the sidelines and just let the status quo carry on. 
Israel is mostly concerned about security and Iran's influence, but it also knows that right now Hezbollah is not really interested in conflict and therefore there's no need for Israel to kind of, you know, do a lot more than what it's already doing, which is to remain vigilant. So yeah, really that leaves Iran <laughs> to be the most active uh, external player in Lebanon now. Gulf funding to Lebanon is not going to happen to rescue the um, economic situation as used to be the case before, because ultimately that funding was given for political influence reasons. And as I said, that did not prove to be a very good investment. So unfortunately, the situation right now uh, remains of a country that is only sovereign on paper. But the number of actors that used to be very active in Lebanon in the past has has pretty much shrunk to one big actor, who is Iran. Mm, interesting. Let's go back to that terrible harbor blast in August of 2020. As you said, no thorough investigation. Uh, no one has really been named um, there are various elements that play that want to quash that. I dare say Hezbollah is one of those elements. How do you understand it? I mean, that the fact that there's been no accountability, that terrible, terrible explosion that is hugely traumatic, so many people killed, so many houses destroyed, so many lives traumatized, and still no answers. Yeah, no answers. And I don't think Lebanon is going to see any answers. Because if you think about other incidents that are uh, remarkable in, 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 in how horrible they are in Lebanon's uh, modern history, you will see that it is very rare to get accountability in these circumstances. Really, really rare. So for example, the number of politicians who have been assassinated in Lebanon since 2005 um, no one has really been held accountable inside Lebanon for these uh, assassinations. When it comes to other kinds of assassinations, like last year, there was a uh, an activist from the Muslim Shia community called Lukman Slim. He was found murdered. Again, no proper investigation of the circumstances surrounding his killing. Uh, the port explosion is, of course... On a, on a, on a, on a bigger scale because it, it killed so many people and destroyed so many houses and had so many casualties in Beirut. And yet, because the port explosion ultimately is to do with the political elite ruling the country in general, Hezbollah in particular, but not just Hezbollah, it is not in the elite's interest for there to be an actual investigation because if an investigation happens and it is indeed impartial and thorough, then all of them will be implicated. And therefore, it is better for them to try to derail the investigation than to have accountability because no one wants to be held accountable themselves. And this is the key issue here. The port responsibility or the port explosion responsibility lies mainly with Hezbollah, yes, but it really also lies with the other political elite in the country because everybody was benefiting from the lawlessness at the port of Beirut. Uh, Hezbollah may have been the most influential actor there, but lots of others in the political system were also getting goods through the port without having to pay customs and engaging 
in behavior, you know, of, of, of that kind. And they don't want to be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, Lena, at the end, I'm going to ask you two different questions. What needs to be done to rescue the people of Lebanon? And what, given the current political reality, can be done? It's very difficult to have a short-term solution for Lebanon. I think the international community needs to be firm in dealing with the political elite of Lebanon to try as much as possible to hold them accountable. Because one thing that the elite got used to is the West turning a blind eye to their transgressions. Sanctions, I think, would be very effective because a lot of these um, individuals have business interests and investments in Europe. So I think concrete measures like that would go a long way to first having um, an, an effect on the individuals themselves um, who are corrupt, but also would send a message to the Lebanese people that they are not alone. For the Lebanese people, seeing their politicians being wined and dined, you know, abroad, uh, does not does not send any message of reassurance. So I think having sanctions in place, insisting on reforms, insisting on transparency as a condition for foreign aid, I think is is the way to go. But also, you know, let's try to remember that the situation in Lebanon remains a crisis. It's an ongoing crisis. And it's not going to get resolved by itself. And because it's a shared responsibility, I think everyone has a role to play. The Lebanese are trying to be as resilient as possible, but they also feel abandoned by the international community. And as the migrant boat tragic incident showed, ultimately people will try to escape. And therefore, what we're dealing with here is, is a problem that goes beyond the borders of Lebanon, people will try their best to kind of leave. Um, Europe is worried about waves of migrants. Lebanon historically did not used to be a source of large numbers of migrants trying to reach Europe, but with economic despair, unfortunately, people are willing to literally risk their lives to try to get out. So especially with Europe, I think Lebanon is not that far away geographically and kind of the situation in Lebanon should definitely become a priority for any European policy regarding the Middle East. Mm. And those sanctions, you're talking about sanctions against the individuals, aren't you? These these wealthy elites, that's a very interesting uh, device that could have a lot of impact. Yeah, because it sends the message to the elites that, that the relationship with the West is changing that the days of uh, engaging with them on the basis of them being representatives of sects who could do whatever they want because the West needs to retain access and influence should be over. The sanctions show that, you know, if you want to engage, then you need to behave. <laughs> and, and that, you know, um, will encourage some actual concrete change in behavior, I think as well as, as I said, reassure the Lebanese people that the West takes accountability in Lebanon seriously. And, and we should close on, on, as you've mentioned, the resilience, extraordinary resilience of the Lebanese uh, people to these, uh, this uh, terrible set of tragedies that they've had to deal with. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, for so many Lebanese people, it's just been 
one wave of problems after another in this country, you know, wars, economic crises, uh, wars next door affecting internal uh, stability, and, and, and now a huge financial crisis that has resulted in more than 80% of the population being below the poverty line. And yet people will, in the for the most part, still try to survive, still try to, to kind of remain resilient, because that's just human nature. But Lebanon is now Definitely not the Lebanon it used to be a few years ago. It's it's become a very sad place, unfortunately. Nina, thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to also make people remember what is going on in Lebanon and, and hopefully pay some attention. Yeah, indeed. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Lina Hatib. Lena is the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at London's Chatham House. We launched our podcast in 2020, and two years on, we're now closing in on 100,000 listeners, with an audience in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon, and other platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA experts contributors like Lena. If you'd like a free trial of the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your free trial period has ended, we are offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you are a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access a digest for free. And if not, ask your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.